Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Bad Philosopher podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about meaning and purpose, specifically discussing what things give purpose and meaning to one's life. So I recently read a book that I'd had on my list for quite a while, and that was a book called Man's Search for Meaning, written by Viktor Frankl, which is about his experiences as a Holocaust survivor and, as the title identifies, about finding or creating meaning in your life. This is a pretty hard-hitting book, specifically because it addresses an extremely difficult topic, which is human suffering. Now, this episode could be considered a sort of spiritual successor of sorts to what we discussed in episode 2 of the podcast, where we looked at Albert Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus and attempted to answer the question, is life worth living? To Camus, he sort of answers this question with an emphatic yes, precisely because life is meaningless and absurd, and here the absurdity is that we're finite beings who seek meaning where there isn't any, Camus says that life is better because it doesn't have a meaning, because we have the freedom to make our own meaning, to make of life whatever we want to make of it. Now if you haven't listened to that episode yet, I would recommend doing so, but it's certainly not necessary. And I'll just quickly touch on a few of the main points made by Camus. First off, he starts his famous Myth of Sisyphus essay saying that the most important question in all of philosophy is judging whether or not life is worth living. Camus quickly identifies that there are moments in our lives where we feel that life is absurd. And he says it's absurd for these two reasons. First, because we are mortal beings who will inevitably die, and we don't really think about this fact very much as we go about our daily lives. And second, because we as rational beings, we naturally seek meaning and purpose in life, only to find that no such meaning or purpose exists. This is, for Camus, humanity's absurd condition. We all seek meaning where there is none, and we all eventually die in the end. He says that this kind of realization can strike us at any time in our life, and it's in this that we can encounter what we might commonly refer to as an existential crisis. This happens when we come face to face with the absurd. We don't know why we're living the lives we're living, doing the mundane things we do on a daily basis. It's in these moments where it can seem like we're living in a Groundhog Day scenario, just living the same life over and over again, day by day. And the mind naturally craves more. Camus goes on to say that in this confrontation with the absurd, we have to navigate several obstacles. And the first of those obstacles is the idea of suicide, of ending one's life because we don't see a point in continuing to live. And then the second obstacle is this idea of taking a leap of faith, or choosing to believe in something like God, despite knowing that it's totally irrational to do so. But belief in God is one of those things that can give our lives a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. Eventually, Camus goes on to say that the only way to rationally liberate our minds from this confrontation we have with the absurd is, rather than to turn away and avoid this absurd condition, we should embrace it. We stare the absurd in the face and we recognize that one day we are all going to die, and in this realization we can find purpose. As an analogy for this absurd condition that humanity finds themselves in, Camus looks at the myth of Sisyphus, and this is a myth in which a king, Sisyphus, he's punished by the gods for evading his own death, for tricking the gods in order to get out of actually dying. His punishment, after he's found out, is to roll a boulder up a hill in the underworld for all of eternity. And every time he gets this boulder to the top of the hill, it would roll back down again, and he'd have to begin this toil again, day after day, for all of eternity. Camus saw this existence of Sisyphus rolling this boulder up a hill for all of eternity as a parallel to our lives. In our often dull, repetitive, and monotonous lives, we are Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill. So here, Camus draws what he says are three conclusions from this confrontation with the absurd. He says that when we decide to embrace the absurdity of life, we gain these things. We, we gain the power to revolt, we gain absurd freedom, and we gain a passion for life. The power to revolt here means that we revolt against the meaninglessness of life, and we revolt against the notion of suicide. Instead of letting this confrontation with the absurd lead us into despair, instead it leads us to a more intentional life that we fill with our own meaning. 
Absurd freedom means that we recognize we are fully free to create our own meaning apart from the expectations of the world or society. And our passion for life comes as a result of understanding that we will all eventually die, and that our goal should be to get as much out of life as we can before that happens. Camus says at the end of his essay, he says, and I quote, One must imagine Sisyphus happy. And by this he means that, despite being condemned to an existence of meaningless toil, that we should imagine that someone like Sisyphus can still find some happiness in life. So a punishment like this that we see with the myth of Sisyphus is fairly straightforward, and it carries with it a moral lesson. And that lesson is that, for the man who tricks the gods to evade death, he will be punished with an eternal life of toil. There's sort of some poetic justice here, and this lesson beckons us to accept and embrace death. Death is, after all, what makes us human, what makes us mortal. Now this brings me to start talking about Viktor Frankl's Holocaust experience and the absurd problem of evil. Frankl's experience here wasn't a punishment like Sisyphus, but rather a dehumanizing suffering imposed on him by a terrible regime. So Frankl, as a Jewish man from Austria during the World War II years, he was sent, along with his wife and his family, to a concentration camp. And he was the only one of his family to come out of that experience alive citing many chance events that went in his favor, but also the fact that he never gave up hope, and that his conviction to find meaning despite his suffering helped him to survive the horrors of the concentration camps. Now this is a very different type of absurdity than the sort of monotonous life described by Camus. Despite this, I think these two writers have a very similar outlook when it comes to finding meaning in one's life, which I'll be comparing a little bit later on. The problem of evil that's being tackled by Frankl here is much more direct and much more in your face. It's not the life of Camus that sort of gets us down in all of its dullness, it's that of a person being forced into an extraordinary situation where they're made to suffer only for the sake of suffering. And there is something very perverse here about the totalitarian obsession with death, with executions and extermination of populations and death camps and labor camps that are basically a protracted death sentence. Naturally, death is supposed to be a very personal thing for human beings. We experience death alone, whether surrounded by loved ones at the time of death or not. In the end, it's a very personal journey that can't be shared. And yet with totalitarianism and these extermination camps, death becomes an industrialized and dehumanizing process. There's no personal quality to it, no reason behind it other than association with a group or being in the wrong place at the wrong time or your name arbitrarily being put on some list. To get an idea of how dehumanizing this whole system was in Nazi Germany in these concentration camps, I'll quote this passage from Viktor Frankl. He says, and I quote, The authorities were only interested in captives' numbers. These numbers were often tattooed on their skin and also had to be sewn to a certain spot on the trousers, jacket, or coat. Any guard who wanted to make a charge against a prisoner just glanced at his number, and how we dreaded such glances. He never asked for his name. So, further regarding this number system and its dehumanization, Frankel shares another anecdote where he says, and I quote, The emaciated bodies of the sick were thrown on two-wheeled carts which were drawn by prisoners for many miles, often through snowstorms, to the next camp. If one of the sick men had died before the cart left, he was thrown on anyway. The list had to be correct. The list was the only thing that mattered. A man counted only because he had a prison number. One literally became a number. Dead or alive, that was unimportant. The life of a number was completely irrelevant. What stood behind that number and that life mattered even less. I won't recount too much about the Holocaust itself here and the Nazi system of genocide other than to say that people who went to these camps suffered through unimaginable atrocities. And Frankel's task with this book is to understand how human beings can still find a meaning and a reason to live even when experiencing such immense suffering. Frankel details how the initial experience of the prisoner going into one of these concentration camps was an experience of absolute shock. Shock at the brutality and at the scenes of what was happening around them in this new environment. This was the first stage of that experience, lasting maybe a few days or weeks, as he relates. 
And the second stage of this transition into concentration camps was this lack of emotion, this numbness. Initially, the prisoners coming into the concentration camp couldn't bear to see what was happening in the camp. It was, this was their experience of shock. But after some time, Frankel says the prisoners began to see this as their new normal, and terrible things no longer shocked them. He says about this time, and I quote, While my cold hands clasped a bowl of hot soup from which I sipped greedily, I happened to look out the window. The corpse, which had just been removed, stared in at me with glazed eyes. Two hours before, I had spoken to that man. Now I continued sipping my soup. If my lack of emotion had not surprised me from the standpoint of professional interest, I would not remember this incident now because there was so little feeling involved in it. So by a professional interest here, what Frankel means is that he's actually a trained neurologist and psychiatrist. So he has a natural interest in this environment of trying to figure out and observe how the human mind reacts to such extreme sights, to such an extreme experience. And what we have here and what he's relaying is that he's gone from this initial state of shock to a feeling of complete numbness, of a human being who you'd think might lack all purpose or reason to live. And naturally, the suicide question might come up here as well, as it does with Camus, who, who says that when we're confronted with the absurdity of life, we have two options here, either suicide or continuing on. Frankel's sentiment seems to be that death in these camps is so all-pervasive that the thought of suicide is almost pointless. Death comes soon enough for those who give up or lose the will to live. He says, and I quote, the thought of suicide was entertained by nearly everyone, if only for a brief time. It was born of the hopelessness of the situation, the constant danger of death looming over us daily and hourly, and the closeness of the death suffered by many of the others. I made myself a firm promise on my first evening in camp that I would not run into the wire. This was a phrase used in camp to describe the most popular method of suicide, touching the electrically charged barbed wire fence. It was not entirely difficult for me to make this decision. There was little point in committing suicide since, for the average inmate, life expectation, calculating objectively and counting all likely chances, was very poor. He could not, with any assurance, expect to be among the small percentage of men who survived all of the selections. The prisoner of Auschwitz, in the first phase of shock, did not fear death. Even the gas chambers lost their horrors for him after the first few days. After all, they spared him the act of committing suicide. So this is a situation where one's liberty is taken away, and death is being imposed on people by external forces. I think we could view suicide in a situation like this as an act of acceptance. Accepting one's fate and saving one's oppressors the trouble by taking things into your own hands. Camus is big on the idea of revolting against the absurd, and for Camus this meant rejecting suicide as an option and instead living with a sense of passion and purpose. Obviously here in the camp there's no passionate living to be had, and little freedom other than the freedom of one's own thoughts. And throughout the book, Frankel starts to go into this mental aspect of his suffering, which makes sense since he's a psychiatrist and a neurologist. And he mentions something interesting about this sort of rich inner life. He goes on to say, and I quote, Sensitive people who were used to a rich intellectual life may have suffered much pain, as they were often of a delicate constitution, but the damage to their inner selves was less. They were able to retreat from their terrible surroundings to a life of inner riches and spiritual freedom. Only in this way can one explain the apparent paradox that some prisoners of a less hardy makeup often seem to survive camp life better than those of a robust nature. So this gets a bit at Frankel's emphasis on the inner life, and the importance of meaning over one's physical situation. Here we get into the realm of the mental of one's will to live, which for Frankel is a will towards meaning. This emphasis on one's inner mental life aligns with how Frankl says we can go on to find meaning in our lives, and he says we can find meaning in three different ways. The first is to find meaning in our work, in our effort, or say our life's goal. The second is to find meaning in our relations to others, for example in love for one's family or a significant other. The third is to find meaning in our ability to endure unavoidable suffering. He says, and I quote, the more one forgets himself, 
by giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. So he's saying here that even in a concentration camp that's dehumanizing prisoners and putting them through terrible suffering, a person can still find meaning. They can still self-actualize by focusing on a reason to keep going, whether, whether it be love of another or some future cause that they want to work towards. It's interesting to contrast this with Camus' idea of revolt, freedom, and passion, which are the things he concludes from accepting the absurdity of life. Passion lines up with this feeling of love for another, freedom with the pursuit of a future cause or goal, and revolt lines up with the idea of enduring one's suffering, of not letting oneself succumb to the suffering of the situation. Let's look a little bit deeper about what these things specifically mean for Frankel. First, he mentions a reason for living, a great cause that has to do with one's life work or one's future goal. For Frankel, while enduring life in the camp, he noticed that his mind would wander to trivial things like daydreaming about food or rest or warmth, in stark contrast to the harsh conditions that he was experiencing in camp life. But in his work as a psychiatrist and a neurologist, he had the idea that giving meaning to one's life meant orienting oneself towards a future goal, towards something that the mind could look forward to. Obviously, this is difficult to do in a concentration camp when one's daily life is to be suffering horribly, but he found a future goal despite this. He says, and I quote, I became disgusted with the state of affairs which compelled me, daily and hourly, to think of only such trivial things. I forced my thoughts to turn to another subject. Suddenly, I saw myself standing on a platform of a well-lit, warm, and pleasant lecture room. In front of me sat an attentive audience on comfortable upholstered seats. I was giving a lecture on the psychology of the concentration camp. All that oppressed me at that moment became objective, seen and described from the remote viewpoint of science. By this method I succeeded somehow in rising above the situation, above the sufferings of the moment, and I observed them as if they were already of the past. So, for Frankel, this became his future goal, to continue his career as a psychiatrist, to give lectures in university, and specifically to give a lecture on the psychology of the concentration camp. And this is exactly what he ended up doing later on after the war, after his liberation. And also what he's sort of done with this book itself. The second thing he says that can give our lives meaning in hard times is love. And he explains his experience in camp thinking about his loved ones, specifically thinking about his wife, who was also sent to the concentration camp along with him, though they ended up being separated shortly thereafter. He says, and I quote, A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth? That love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. So here we have him describing a sort of a transcendental experience when contemplating his love for his wife, the love of another human being. He goes on to say just after this, and I quote, my mind still clung to the image of my wife. A thought crossed my mind. I didn't even know if she were still alive. I only knew one thing, which I have learned well by now. Love goes very far beyond the physical person of the beloved. It finds its deepest meaning in its spiritual being, its inner self. Whether or not they are actually present, whether or not they are still alive at all, ceases somehow to be of importance. So here, Frankel gives this example of finding meaning in our life through love. And not even just the presence of love, but even here he's showing how the idea of one's love can have a profound impact in our mind and help us through the darkest times. In a sense, it doesn't even matter what the reality of the thing that we're focusing on even is. The whole point here is that we're focusing on something that's transcendental, that brings us beyond our current conditions or our current situation. So the final thing that Frankel mentioned that can give meaning to one's life in these dark times is that one can find meaning through enduring involuntary suffering. 
And this is a sort of suffering that we endure that's imposed on us. It's not suffering of our own free will. And specifically, he seems to be talking about the need to suffer now so that later on we'll be able to accomplish those goals we've been thinking of, or suffer now so that at some point in the future we'll survive to see our beloved again. Frankel gives some additional detail on the ability for people to endure this kind of suffering, and he goes on to say, and I quote, We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And there were always choices to make. Every day, every hour, offered the opportunity to make a decision. A decision which determined whether you would or would not submit to those powers which threatened to rob you of your very self, your inner freedom, which determined whether or not you would become the plaything of circumstance, renouncing freedom and dignity to become molded into the form of the typical inmate. So in this thought, he's kind of relaying that through suffering, we can find humaneness, we can find our humanity, we can find out what we're made of. And this is only possible to find out about ourselves when we are enduring hardships like this. It also seems to point the way towards a more spiritual life. Since he was a medical practitioner by trade, he was at certain points in his incarceration tasked with taking care of other inmates who had fallen ill and were soon to die. And when he discusses taking care of this particular person, he says, and I quote, This young woman knew that she would die in the next few days. But when I talked to her, she was cheerful in spite of this knowledge. I am grateful that fate has hit me so hard, she told me. In my former life, I was spoiled and did not take spiritual accomplishments seriously. Pointing through the window of the hut, she said, This tree here is the only friend I have in my loneliness. Through that window, she could see just one branch of a chestnut tree, and on the branch were two blossoms. I often talked to this tree, she said to me. I was startled and didn't know quite how to take her words. Was she delirious? Did she have occasional hallucinations? Anxiously, I asked her if the tree replied. Yes. What did it say to her? She answered. It said to me, I am here. I am here. I am life. Eternal life. So this is a pretty intense example of how suffering can open us up to a spiritual experience or a spiritual life. And the thing is, too, that a lot of philosophy, especially going back to ancient times, deals with the concept of suffering very intimately. The ancient Greeks, for example, they came up with various systems of minimizing or reducing suffering. And the Romans took it further in their development of traditions such as Stoicism, for example. We could say that Stoicism is a philosophy that developed out of a need to address and overcome one's suffering. And then in Christianity, we have that tradition too. I mean, Jesus apparently suffered a mortal death on the cross for the sake of cleansing humanity of their sins. This is a religion with suffering baked into their prophet or their savior. Hinduism sees one's goal in life to be that of attaining what they call moksha, a release from the cycle of rebirth. The idea here is that life itself is inherently suffering and that we go through these reincarnations through this cycle of life. And that the only way to remove this suffering is to get out of this cycle. So they, throughout their lives, strive to attain liberation from the cycle. They strive to attain this moksha. And the word moksha literally means free. Buddhism came along shortly after this and agreed with Hinduism, agreed that all life is suffering. But Buddhism takes a psychological dynamic here. It says that it's because of our attachment to life and our desires and our cravings related to our mortal lives that this is the root of all suffering. This wanting and desiring is what brings suffering into our lives. Buddhism provided a way to overcome this suffering within one's mortal life by striving towards letting go of these attachments and cravings, striving towards nirvana, which literally means blown out. The idea here is that in our attainment of nirvana, this means that our craving and attachment towards life, it's, it's blown out, it's extinguished. And with this, we become free of desire, and then free of suffering, and we can enter a state of enlightenment. 
And in the Chinese philosophy of Confucianism, there was a strong emphasis on virtue and right action, on following proper conduct in order to create social harmony. And the idea here is that suffering is alleviated through acts that promote social harmony. And if we just look to Chinese history, I mean, the greatest periods of suffering that have occurred in China have happened whenever there's been an upheaval that destroyed social harmony. So the Confucians here were promoters of social harmony, whereas in traditions such as Taoism, they promoted harmony with nature as a means of attaining harmony for oneself and freedom from suffering. So here we can see that philosophy has an extremely rich history of addressing the problem of suffering and considering how we can overcome this suffering, whether it be in a societal context or an individual context. And what Frankel is saying here in the 20th century is that suffering can give our lives meaning. He warns against the idea of seeking out suffering. Obviously, he doesn't mean we should go out and try to suffer for the sake of just suffering. And this is sort of something I've done in the past, for example, on a long and difficult trail run or a hike or something like that. He's specifically talking about involuntarily suffering where we're not in control of it. This sort of forces us towards a spiritual life. All of these things that Frankel is discussing, this focus on the mind of thinking about one's future goal or purpose and thinking about love, for example, he's having conversations with his wife in his own mind and also finding a sort of spiritual purpose or meaning through suffering itself. It's interesting to consider the fact that all of these things he's talking about are also mental images. They're all internal to his own mind. His ability to focus on a future goal and to think about a loved one and to find purpose through suffering, these are all things that happen internally in one's own mind. They aren't dependent on there being any external world out there. To me, this brings up an interesting book called Simulacra and Simulation by philosopher Jean Baudrillard. And in this book, he discusses the idea that in so many ways in our lives, we replace external reality with symbols and images. We replace the external world with ideas in our own minds that color our reality. Baudrillard even goes so far as to say that, at a certain point, our entire society and culture becomes made up of what he calls simulacra, a representation of the world that's not the world as it truly is, but this is a representation in symbols and images. And his theory here is that all of us who take part in this simulacra, we become simulators, because we can't see the real world through the simulacra being layered on top of it or distinguish between the real and the unreal. We behave in a way so that our actions, ideas, and beliefs all mimic the world as it appears in this simulacrum, in this world propped up on ideas and symbols rather than reality. For me, I think of internet meme culture as a prime example of this. We use memes, which are these non-real concepts, to sort of comment on concepts that we gather from the world, or what we think is the world. Now let's just look at how this process actually works. So say we're on the internet and first there's an initial idea that gets presented, or this could be some event that happens. And it's presented through the medium of the internet. So it's already had a layer of distortion before it even gets to our eyes. I mean, someone needs to take a picture or a video or write something and post it somewhere online. That itself is going to, in some way, alter it from its original state. And then, with this meme culture, someone can take a totally unrelated image of, say, a person or an animal, and layer on top of that image some text that in some way is referential to the initial idea being presented or shared online. And when this image and text combination is posted as a response to that initial idea or initial post, this can result in the meme itself totally capturing the attention and essentially replacing the initial idea. The meme becomes the topic. So first there was a topic, there was something shared, and then there was a meme that was posted in response to it, and essentially the meme takes over, the meme becomes the topic. So to break down how this actually happens, let's take a step back and sort of go over how Baudrillard explains the different stages of our symbols and images and how they eventually become this simulacrum. So the stages of the image as defined by Baudrillard are this, there's four stages. 
The first stage is that the image is a reflection of a profound reality. So this might be an image or a video that's shared online of a real event, totally unaltered, except that it's being shown through a digital format. The second stage is that an image masks and denatures a profound reality. So this could be the commentary or editing of an image or a video of a real event, an alteration that makes it more fit for consumption or more likely to grab attention, maybe. The third stage is an image that masks the absence of a profound reality. And this could be the act of posting an image or a video that doesn't portray a real event but claims to. This could be in the form of a meme as a response or a meme as a topic in itself. The fourth stage is an image that has no relation to any reality whatsoever. It is its own pure simulacrum. And this could be when the meme completely takes over and becomes the news or event itself. The meme here becomes more real and more relevant to us than the actual event that was initially shared. Another way to think about this, and maybe a better one, is how Baudrillard uses the idea of a map being used by, say, a kingdom. First, a map is created that's supposed to accurately reflect the reality of the kingdom. Then the map is used and altered. Things can be moved around, things can be renamed. And reality is then made to follow suit. So initially you start off with a map that's a reflection of reality as close to reality as it can get. And then you start using this map to start organizing reality, to start placing and changing how things are laid out. You use the map to determine where to send the armies and where to establish settlements and so on. Another feature of this map is that it has a limited scope, a limited range of knowledge. Beyond the borders of the kingdom, you might have some unknowns. You might have some blank space or some filler. You might have filled in what you think might be there beyond the borders of the kingdom. You fill in the map with your own ideas, like you put mountain ranges or boundaries or oceans where you think they might be. And this happened in reality. Mappers in ancient times, they put a big continent where Antarctica is now. Hundreds of years before Antarctica was ever actually seen and known to exist, they just presumed that there was going to be another continent or landmass there. So here you have the map sort of filling in the blanks of our knowledge. It, it masks our ignorance by putting something there, whether there is something there or not. And finally, in the last stage, the map has no relation to reality whatsoever. Imagine a king looking over his kingdom on a map, but never actually venturing out of his castle to see the kingdom with his own eyes. In this way, his life would essentially be reduced to ruling over a map, and who even knows whether or not the map itself reflects reality or not, if no one's out there checking. By now, the map has established itself as the foremost image, the primary symbol of the kingdom, the simulacrum of the kingdom. For all intents and purposes, the map is the reality of the kingdom as we know it, or as the king knows it. Now, this idea of the simulacrum, it goes far beyond memes and maps. It goes to things that are more fundamental to our society. Think of law and order, for example. Law and order aren't concepts that exist out there in reality. They're not some objective things. They are invented concepts, and they are inherently subjective because we humans created them. Law and order are themselves a simulacrum of our own creation that's supposed to guide human interactions and govern our society. And we, we act as simulators when we behave as law-abiding citizens. We uphold the simulacrum. It's through our act of simulating law and order in real life, of doing what we're supposed to do in terms of upholding law and order, that we give legitimacy to the concepts themselves of law and order, and we turn those concepts into our reality. In this way, we sort of lose sight of what the true reality is, the true reality being that no such things as law and order exist. I mean, just think of a time when you've been completely alone and separated off from the world, maybe out in nature or something. And if you haven't done this, then I would highly recommend it. It's a profound experience to get far away from other human beings. And when you're out there alone, the last thing on your mind is the idea of behaving according to law and order. The whole idea of law and order seem kind of silly. I mean, nature has its own law and order, and it's nothing like our own. 
our sense of law and order is itself just a simulacrum. But it's one we've all chosen to believe, and it's become our reality, and this is probably because it serves some central purpose to our society. It allows our society to function in a law and order kind of way. We see hints of this simulacra and simulation activity happening in Frankel's account of his experience in the concentration camps. And it seems to have had its most profound impact when the prisoners are eventually liberated as the war draws to a close. With liberation, we see cognitive dissonance occur. To describe the trauma that Frankel and others in these camps went through, he discusses what it felt like when they were finally liberated and basically saved from death at the last moment. Unlike so many others that went into this and other Holocaust concentration camps, Frankel survived. He describes how when the liberation day came and they knew they were safe and soon to be free, they didn't have any emotion about it. They were numb. They remained sort of detached, sort of like that initial shock feeling when they first went into the camp. There was some cognitive dissonance here. The camp life they had become so used to had now changed. Frankel says about this time, and I quote, Psychologically, what was happening to the liberated prisoners could be called depersonalization. Everything appeared unreal, unlikely, as in a dream. We could not believe it was true. How often in the past years had we been deceived by dreams? We dreamt that the day of liberation had come, that we had been set free, had returned home, greeted our friends, embraced our wives, sat down at the table, and started to tell of all the things we had gone through, even of how we had often seen the day of liberation in our dreams. And then a whistle shrilled in our ears, the signal to get up, and our dreams of freedom came to an end. And now the dream had come true, but could we truly believe in it? So this is a sentiment where, throughout their time in the concentration camp, prisoners had dreamed and prophesied their eventual liberation of getting home to their loved ones, of their lives going back to normal. And when they had dreamed these things, they would be awoken back into the real world, where they're still in the concentration camp, still toiling away and suffering. But on the real liberation day, when they were actually free, it was hard to believe. They, they didn't know if it was real. They didn't know if they could believe this event that they had dreamed of for so long had finally come true. In a way, all of these prisoners, in their dreams, they had been simulating this future life where they were liberated, where they got to go back to normal. But when the day finally came, how could they believe in it? Frankel goes on to say about reflecting on this later on, he says, and I quote, But for every one of the liberated prisoners, the day comes when, looking back on his camp experiences, he can no longer understand how he endured it all. As the day of his liberation eventually came, when everything seemed to him like a beautiful dream, so also the day comes when all of his camp experiences seem to him nothing but a nightmare. So here we're seeing two sort of different states of being. While in camp and suffering, the idea of liberation was a dream. And yet, when they were actually liberated and free, the idea of the camp was a nightmare. It's like the two sides can't integrate with one another. Both seem equally unreal to the other side. The prisoner in the camp dreams of liberation, but when liberation comes, they feel alienated from it. And then the former prisoner, years later, looking back on their past experiences in the camp, they feel alienated from that too. It feels like a nightmare to them. They can't imagine that it was once their actual life for a time. And yet, all of these things, they are someone's lived experience. All of the prisoners that survived, they went through the period of suffering and liberation and then reflection. So this, to me, it points to the complexity of our internal worlds. Frankel says, and I quote, if someone now asked of us the truth of Dostoevsky's statement that flatly defines man as a being who can get used to anything, we would reply, yes, a man can get used to anything, but do not ask us how. So this is also an example of how one's reality can become this sort of hyper-real experience where you have two separate realities that can't quite be parsed with one another. The prisoners, imagining their liberation for so long, they simulated in their minds what it would be like and how it would all happen. And then when it actually did happen, and their simulated ideas clashed with reality, they were numb. They were dumbstruck. Their reality no longer made sense to them. 
This points to the fact that, from all directions, our ideas about reality are clashing, they're in conflict with one another. These Nazi guards at these concentration camps were simulating being brutal guards charged with the extermination of a population. Regardless of whether they agreed with these actions or not, they still took part in them. Also, the liberators in planning their advance were simulating what the liberation would entail. Making a plan of attack is in itself a simulation, a simulation of the battlefield. And then once you've simulated it, you carry out that action, and you better hope your simulated battle goes as well as the real one. That's what victory looks like. Defeat is when our simulated battlefield doesn't go to plan. In both of these models, reality doesn't come first. Both sides of the equation in this conflict, both sides simulate how the battle's going to go in their favor, but only one side can be right. First we simulate, and then reality follows along after. We don't always simulate based on what reality actually is. To the prisoners simulating their liberation, their simulated liberation failed so many times every time they woke from their dream. And when finally reality somehow matched up to their simulated liberation, it felt totally unreal to them, like a totally surreal experience. What this all points to, to me, is that meaning can be found through these acts of simulation. To find meaning, Frankl simulated a lecture hall in his mind. He simulated conversations with his wife. He simulated finding salvation from the suffering of camp by imagining food and comfort and liberation, by imagining freedom. Not all of these acts of simulation came to fruition, but some of them did. And in the modern world, to those of us who are not living in concentration camps, in our search for meaning, we're often playing the role of simulators as well. There is no real meaning out there that we can find. All meaning, then, is a construct in our own minds, or a simulacra that we buy into that obscures the reality. The reality is that we are human animals living in a world that's vastly different than the natural environment our minds and bodies evolved to thrive in. But we simulate this world as if this is a truer reality or a better reality. We simulate our innate natural selves by going outside, by going for walks and exercising out in nature, or if we're super desperate, maybe exercising in a gym. But the idea of a gym itself is a simulacra. It sort of replaces the nature that we evolve into. It doesn't in any way mimic a natural environment that we're built to flourish in. So in this way, we sort of live these simulated lives where we trade our time for money. We use that money to buy basic things like food and shelter and security. And then with what's left, we use that to buy things that are supposed to make us happy, to give our lives some meaning and purpose. But what we've really done is we've taken the purpose out of our lives in these social constructs of ours, and later on now we're trying to go backwards and reconstruct what's been lost. A similar process of simulation can happen in love also, specifically the idea of romantic love. In her book, What Love Is and What Love Could Be, by philosopher Carrie Jenkins, she discusses how our current modern conceptions of romantic love fulfills a very specific role in society. Particularly, romantic love upholds the ideal of the nuclear family, to marry someone, buy a house, have kids, and a good chunk of the time get a divorce as well. In her book, she says, and I quote, In a society that values romantic love as its primary model for a normal life, powerful feelings of care and desire that one experiences for another person will tend to be focused towards the creation of a marriage-based, monogamous, lifelong, reproductive family unit with that person. Once formed, that nuclear unit can be locked in by providing social and legal benefits such as tax breaks, social approbation, and hospital visiting rights that incentivize staying together while making the alternatives, separation and divorce, costly and complicated. So it does seem like this idea of the monogamous family unit is the ideal way to structure our society. And our economic system is sort of built on this idea too. For example, in modern developed countries, the idea of getting married and buying your own home. This is something that's rarely possible with only one income. So it almost forces this togetherness with one other person so that your combined resources can afford housing. 
And this is an important factor for this lifelong pair bonding. I mean, nobody is going to take on a decades-long mortgage with another person if they don't expect to be together for the rest of their lives. So this notion of romantic, monogamous love with a single lifelong partner becomes predominant in society. And the trick here is that this whole arrangement sort of keeps the economic system running. Marriage costs a lot of money, and then so does buying a home. This basically requires two people to work conventional 9-to-5 jobs and seek higher and higher pay to afford this sort of lifestyle, this sort of ideal. And then bringing kids into the mix. Most people don't have the luxury of taking time off work to raise their own kids. Instead, they need to keep working to afford the house and to afford the kids. And instead of taking care of them themselves in the day, sending their kids to daycare for a large portion of that day. So how exactly did this become our ideal form of love? Jenkins goes on to say, and I quote, Romantic love has the function of structuring society into nuclear family units harnessing the powerful forces of adult attraction, affection, and care to that end. It works so well that it becomes easy to forget that the default nuclear family is not the only way to structure social life. We could all live in large communal groups, or we could all live much more isolated lives, or we could treat a wide range of social configurations as normal rather than seeing any one model as the default. But we don't. We literally romanticize romantic love, and in so doing we hand it the power to structure society to direct us into nuclear family units. That is the power of love. So it's easy to see how different forms of love could make the traditional family unit less stable. It could result in less people buying houses or having kids or, God forbid, getting married. And who knows what that could do to society. Maybe acceptance of wider forms of love and moving away from the conventional form of love would allow us to live happier lives overall. Maybe some of us would prefer to be polyamorous, loving multiple partners at once. Or serial monogamous, i.e. monogamous for a period of time before then moving on. Or just plain old lifelong monogamous with the same person. Society already does have all of these things, it's just that they're taboo and shunned when they fall outside of these norms that we've established. For example, adultery seems to be a fairly common occurrence even in monogamous relationships. But what if those people who are unfaithful to their spouses or partners were really just better off if they had an open polyamorous relationship where their relations with others didn't represent an existential threat to their committed partner? It does seem like these kinds of conversations are becoming more common today. And we've probably all heard of some serial monogamists, like people who get into an intense, dedicated relationship with one person and then it ends and then they repeat again. We might see this in people who are on, say, their fourth or fifth marriage. In her book, Jenkins also mentions the concept of amatonormativity, and this is the idea that Romantic love is treated as the normal and ideal condition for human life, and that lives that don't include romantic love are somehow imperfect or abnormal. This is a bias that probably most of us still hold today. I mean, single people are often encouraged to find a romantic partner, and failure to do so or even not wanting to do so is seen as abnormal. So clearly there's a lot more to the concept of love than just monogamous, romantic love that's sold to us in movies, songs, and fairy tales. And herein lies the power of the simulacra and simulation in relation to love. Let's look at how the concept of love gets twisted and perverted in our modern world. So at the first stage, the concept of love is based on a sort of biological reality. Those feelings we get from the love chemicals in our bodies and our brains, this is a profound reality. And our ideas about love and pair bonding with another being are sort of layered on top of that biological reality. In this way, love at its core, the raw feeling of love, it reflects our biological truth. In the second stage, society begins to organize itself in a way where love becomes possession. We see patriarchal societies emerge where women become the property of men. When the concept of property appears in society, love is morphed and gets wrapped up in ideas about property as well. Monogamy here becomes increasingly important because intergenerational wealth starts to become a thing once we start to establish property, at least in a one-sided sort of way. 
because a male wants to ensure that his biological heir inherits his status. Through the convention of marriage, this intergenerational passing on of wealth becomes possible, but it's only really possible through the convention of marriage and based on the absolute fidelity of the woman to bear children for the one male. In the third stage, we see the rise of romantic love in our culture. And what's happening here is that romantic love is masking the absence of the reality of natural monogamy. Monogamy and marriage were cultural inventions, not biological truths that were inherent to us. So here, romantic love masks the absence of the reality of monogamy, and we all take part in this by simulating the ideal of romantic love in our actions. Through our cultural institutions, we're all made to believe in this ideal of romantic love. Again, it doesn't replace marriage, it just gets sort of layered on top of it. And in the fourth stage, romantic love becomes the truest reality about love. It supersedes reality and becomes its own sort of reality. And this is the romantic love that's marketed in movies and advertisements. It's all pervasive in our songs, our culture, and media. And romantic love becomes the reality that we all strive towards. Our capitalist system even becomes arranged towards this ideal, as we see in the convention of Valentine's Day, for example. But if we take a good hard look at this society of love, we can see that this ideal isn't all it's cracked up to be. It's not like everyone in a monogamous, committed relationship is completely happy with this arrangement. And how many families are started in the spirit of upholding this ideal only to be split apart later when it doesn't work out for whatever reason? So Jenkins goes on here to point out several reasons why this romantic love ideal could be bad for us to try and pursue. She says, and I quote, The problematic norm is that everyone should have one true love forever, with the important corollaries that, one, this entails sexual monogamy forever, and two, it should be enforced for men as well as for women. It's not hard to see that a huge head of steam has built up behind that idea. High and rising divorce rates suggest that the one true love forever model is not sustainable as a universal norm. And the idea that one will eventually and inevitably lose sexual and or romantic interest in one's long-term partner has become so normalized as to be a rom-com trope in its own right. Relationship therapist Esther Perel puts it this way, Everywhere romanticism has entered, there seems to be a crisis of desire. Yet, at the moment, we seem to be attempting to treat this problem at the individual level, with medical interventions like Viagra, with couples therapy, and with forlorn purchases of exciting lingerie. So I think it's a good time to ask the question here is, who is this system really serving? All things considered, I mean, love does seem to give our lives a lot of meaning in whichever form it is, in whichever form works for us. And Jenkins concludes her book with the idea that we should all think about love for ourselves and find a way to organize our relationships in ways that work for our particular needs, for our particular brand of love. Rather than falling into this false ideal of romantic love, we should all strive to define what our own ideal form of love is, and maybe it even changes over time. I think this sort of points to the fact that love might be better as an ideal than it is in practice. And this could explain its enduring allure. I mean, how often do we romanticize the idea of a perfect partner as a concept only to be disappointed when they don't live up to that hype? Or how often do people in relationships have expectations of one another based on some cultural convention that don't get upheld for whatever reason? Or how often do people pursue traditional forms of romantic love and marriage only to decide later on that it doesn't actually work for them and it's not what they truly wanted? Maybe it's the ideal of love that we truly love, not so much the act of loving. And Frankel's experiences show this. He was able to find a sense of meaning by imagining his beloved and thinking of her. We could be heartened here to think that he was thinking of the specific person, but also it's the fact that this was a representation, an idealized form of that person, or of what that person could be. While the real person may have been the motivating force behind the ideal, that person themselves is not the ideal. This brings us right back to the mental aspects of our lives. In a sense, we all live in these sort of idealized bubble worlds where we find meaning and purpose internally rather than externally out in the world. 
And Frankel, suffering in the concentration camp, wasn't able to physically encounter those things that gave his life meaning. He wasn't physically lecturing in a university yet, and he wasn't having real conversations with his wife. But these ideas pulled in from the external world gave life to his internal world. I kind of think all of life might be like this. We're constantly simulating these ideals. We simulate the perfect job, or the perfect vacation, or the perfect day, or the perfect romantic partner, or the perfect life. And these ideals rarely match what we experience in reality. But reality itself grounds us so that we can continue to strive towards those ideals. And those ideals are what give our lives their purpose, their meaning. Maybe the biggest problem we encounter here is that so much of our reality is perverted by the simulacra. Just think of all the culturally imbued ideals that dominate our lives, such as the idea of marrying a lifelong partner, buying a house, and having children. These ideals can be dangerous if they're not things that we really want, and if we just happen to fall into them because they, we think that they're the right thing to be doing. It's important that we reflect on these preconceived ideals present in our culture in order to decide how to truly think about them, and to decide whether these ideals work for us in our own lives. It should feel right for us. We shouldn't try to pursue the ideal and then try to make ourselves fit the mold. It should be the other way around. So I'd like to go on to wrap things up pretty quickly here. From uh, Viktor Frankl's book, from the foreword, there's a passage by Rabbi Harold Kushner where he says, and I quote, Forces beyond your control can take away everything you possess except one thing, your freedom to choose how you will respond to the situation. You cannot control what happens to you in life, but you can always control what you will feel and do about what happens to you. This sounds like a very stoic ideal, a radical acceptance of your circumstances and not giving in to those externalities, instead remaining at peace with our internal selves. We can also connect this back to what Camus was saying in the myth of Sisyphus. Despite our situation, we always retain some tiny bit of freedom, and with this freedom we can attempt to shape our lives, to shape our situation into something more meaningful to us. Similar to how Camus says we need to embrace the absurdity of life, Frankl says that we need to embrace our suffering. Something beautiful he says in this book is that our questioning the meaning of life isn't just a one-way street. What he means here is that often we think of it as a one-directional thing, as us humans questioning the meaning of life. But sometimes, Frankl says, and this can happen by chance, life questions us. Life presents us with a test or an obstacle, and this can be manifested as suffering. And it's how we respond to this question or to this suffering that can determine meaning in our lives. Whether it's work or love, we shouldn't go ahead just trying to emulate what seems right or what others are doing. This is our life to live, and we can forge our own path and create our own meaning. This isn't an easy thing to do, and for most of us it might feel wrong, but if we step back and analyze our situations, I would ask, does the state of our world as it is now really feel right? And the problem with this approach to making our own meanings in life is, I mean, of course, how can we know that we're creating the right meanings or doing the right things? Well, I think creating a meaning that serves you means there's going to be some trial and error here. And through trial and error, you might stumble across something that just feels right. And there is a bit of a litmus test here, at least for me anyways. I'm an idea-oriented person. I tend to come up with a lot of ideas, most of them being really bad. And usually coming up with more ideas than I could possibly know what to do with. So a good thing to do, to, for me anyways, when coming up with an idea that feels right is to just sit on it. Don't discuss it and don't pursue it yet. Don't jump to action. Just sit with the idea. Give it some time. And if after a few days or a week it's still dominating your thoughts and it keeps coming back up, then it's probably a good idea and maybe one that you should pursue. This philosophy podcast, for example, sat in my head for a long time before finally being actioned on. And in a lot of ways it was something that I really couldn't let go, that I couldn't stop thinking of. Sometimes we have impulses towards things that just feel right, to such a degree that we can't possibly imagine not pursuing them, 
we sort of have to pursue them. And maybe this is life throwing us a question, throwing us a test. Naturally, if we pursue this path, then our meaning in life can become oriented towards those things that do feel like the right things to be doing, like starting a relationship with someone, or moving somewhere new, or leaving a job that no longer serves our longer-term goals, or going on a month-long adventure backpacking through India. It's important here that we try and decide these things authentically, not in a way that's simulating what we think should be meaningful to us or what we think sounds good on paper. If we're going to find meaning in life and in love, then that meaning should come from within us, not influenced by externalities. And maybe this is just as close to a true reality as we can ever possibly get. So, thank you everyone who's listened this far. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. For anyone who's interested, this Friday we'll be coming out with a companion podcast where we're going to be talking about ancient Greek mythologies and ideas about love. So we'll be looking at Plato's Symposium um, in a little bit of detail. And for anyone who's unaware, the companion podcast is bonus content for members only. So if you sign up as a paying member through Patreon or a membership through our website, you get access to a weekly bonus companion podcast that comes out every Friday. And this sort of bonus episode lets me nerd out a little bit on some philosophy material and also answer any listener questions or comments and just generally provide some additional follow-up thoughts to whatever was discussed in the most recent podcast episode. So if you're interested, check out patreon.com slash badphilosopher or badphilosopher.com for um, membership options on our website. And otherwise, if you just want to keep listening to the regular weekly podcast, well, you can keep on doing that for free. So thank you everyone for listening, and I will see you all on the next one.